In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You've seen the pictures. You've read the headlines. You've listened to the dire news reports. We all have. Climate change is real, it's here now, and it's terrifying. But there's something else we all need to understand too. Predictions of the apocalypse drive clicks and they drive shares and they make money. But that doesn't mean the world is about to end next year, or the year after that, or even over the next decade, no matter how quickly the climate changes. Humans are adaptable. We are inventors, we're smart, and we're capable of advanced problem solving. And so, yes, the climate is changing rapidly and in horrible ways, but we are also, right now, creating new technologies, inventing new ways of living, and rethinking our current behaviors to adjust to a new reality, to survive. You don't often hear enough about those things. Certainly not as often as you hear about how utterly screwed we are. And why does that matter? Because hope matters. Because a goal to work towards is always better than despair. Because if we're all going to really fight back against climate change, we need to see examples of battles that we can win. We need to know that we are not powerless. So how can we? without ignoring the real danger the planet faces. Tell those stories. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, and this is The Big Story. Cheryl Kirschenbaum is the executive director of Science Debate, an organization that works to get candidates on record on science policy. She also co-directs Michigan State University's Food Literacy and Engagement Poll and hosts an NPR podcast called Serving Up Science. Hey, Cheryl. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. And maybe um, as we get started here, just to sort of set up a baseline, because we're going to go in a different direction on climate change today. You are a scientist. You work on this stuff. How much trouble is the world in due to climate change? Just to, just to lay the baseline for everywhere else we're about to go. Yes, climate change is serious. We're in a lot of trouble. It's not a new issue. It's something that scientists and others have been grappling with for decades. But we haven't been taking the precautions that we could be um, to lead to a better outcome. So unfortunately, we're emitting a lot of greenhouse gases, and that's changing our oceans, it's changing our environment, it's changing our whole world, and that's going to have ripple effects, and it won't impact all of us equally. Right. And now, let's get at what you wrote about, which is, how do you see that future that we're talking about depicted um, when climate change is covered by, by the media or, or elsewhere? I find it very frustrating, to be honest, because when we hear climate change, usually there's often a photo depicting a skeleton of an animal on a desert 
or it's always the the storms and hurricanes ripping out trees. And unfortunately, for good reason, there have been wildfires in the news. And on one hand, it's it's heartbreaking, but also it's a way that we have been more focused on climate. But I feel like we're so um, we're paying so much attention to the real negatives and what ifs and what's coming or potentially coming, but we're not spending the time to talk about solutions and the people that are working now to try to avoid these horrible future scenarios that are still, if not avoidable, we can change them to be less dramatic and less severe, particularly in the developing world um, where people are more vulnerable to food shortages and water shortages and energy shortages and everything that goes with that. Why do you think it's covered the way that it is now with those pictures you mentioned? Well, I think that there's a lot of reasons. I think that, you know, on one hand, I called it in the piece uh, that you had had seen, I call it doomsday porn. I think in some ways we live in this environment where everything has to be clickable. And the more dire, the more pressing, the more likely it is that someone is going to follow a link to get to a story and advertisers are involved. So I don't think that's the whole reason, but I do think that that's part of it. Um, I also think we kind of can't help ourselves but worry about the future in so many ways, and climate is part of that. My concern is, you know, working in this space, and as I said, I've been working in this space for about 20 years. Um, A lot of people reach out to me on a weekly basis, especially young people, that they're anxious, depressed, deciding not to have kids, making these big life choices and feeling so stressed without having a background in the science and really seeing a way out of this crisis. And while I don't think climate change is something that will magically solve, there's a lot of pieces to it. I wish we'd focus on the folks looking at a more resilient future, looking at complex systems and talking about the different levers that we can use uh, to make things a bit better, because those are still very, very possible. When you use the term uh, resilient future, what does that mean? We can be acting now to make sure that we prioritize food security, for example. And many people are. So I work in agriculture at Michigan State University. And I work with some amazing people that are looking at what makes our crops more resilient to drought and to storms and to flooding. And if we can get more attention to a lot of these issues, we can garner more funding for the people thinking about these challenges and the solutions that go with them, then we'll be able to adapt in ways that are still possible. But when I click on a link or open my laptop or see what's on Twitter, it's a lot of panic and hopelessness. Um, And it's not these stories about these people to to me who are real heroes um, of climate change. I think we might start to see a little more of that. I know uh, Dr. Michael Mann is about to come out with his next book that is focused on hope over panic, but it's a really hard conversation to shift. And while it used to be the kind of thing that politicians wouldn't even say, wouldn't even talk about, you mentioned my um, my nonprofit that I co-founded, Science Debate. We worked to get candidates running for office to address science and technology policy. And when we got going in 2007, 2008, you weren't even hearing the term climate change. So we've come a really long way since then, where now it's an issue that comes up all the time in stump speeches, maybe a little bit more in the U.S. from one party than the other. But we're still not at a place where I think that talking point has translated into actionable items. But we're seeing a lot more interest in what some of those policies might look like uh, that I think is based on science. But again, we're often really struggling with 
having the will in the political realm to make that happen. I know one of the things that I personally struggle with and that I think we we also struggle with on the show sometimes when we cover climate change is to focus um, on the numbers. And by that, I mean um, the targets that aren't being met and also specifically the kind of 1.5 degree target that I think a lot of people have heard a ton about. And mostly what we've heard about it lately is that there's no way we could even hope to cap it at that. And I guess I wonder, you know, what gets lost when the the future of the world and what it actually looks like to live in it is kind of reduced to, to a number on the thermometer? That's a great question. We've been presented this either or in many cases, right? You you hit that target and the world is ending, it's the apocalypse, or we save ourselves by somehow magically staying under some kind of threshold. And I've heard a lot of different thresholds. And that's not a really fair way to present climate change, in my opinion. We are going to continue to see changes because these happen over a very long time. It's not like something we do immediately can change the foreseeable future in a significant, meaningful way that suddenly climate change isn't a problem. But we lose focus on the things that can matter most. So, for example, a lot of people come and talk to me and they think we need some grand new innovation that we can invent ourselves out of this crisis and we just just need to get there. It's new technology. And they don't realize that one of the most impactful ways that we can work to affect the outcome or (laughs) to change the trajectory we're on uh, regarding climate change is simply by wasting less food. We throw away between a third and a half of the food we produce. And that's a lot of water, a lot of energy, a lot of wasted deforestation, a lot of land to produce something that we just toss and then in turn produce a whole bunch of emissions through that process. Um, So there's something we don't need any kind of new innovation or technology to move toward, but we're not hearing about it because maybe it's not as exciting, right? Food waste, who wants to talk about that? But, But there's an example of something we can do right now to emit far less and have a lot of other benefits around the world as well. But it's kind of how do you get people to do that, you know, um, without scaring them, without without giving them that uh, the world is going to end type feeling. And because otherwise, like you said, you know, food waste is not a, a sexy thing to talk about, but maybe it is when you're threatened with the end of the world. Hopeful messages motivate people to act a lot more than doomsday scenarios. There's a lot, there's a, there's a new feel that's come recently where people are looking at the psychology of climate change. And it seems that very much so when people feel that they can take action to do something about it, they're more likely to um, to stay positive, to want to be involved in solutions. Uh, I also think there's this thing that feeds on itself, especially in the policy realm, where if we are presented over and over with this doomsday scenario, we see politicians who used to call climate change a hoax, then turn and go 180 degrees and say, well, it's real, but it's there's nothing we can do about it. We're already doomed. There is a lot of middle ground. And I think it sometimes has to do with who the messenger is. In, in the past, I've done a lot of work in energy, water, conservation, and climate specifically. And I give a lot of talks, but usually I'm talking to people that already understand the problem. Now that I work in agriculture, 
I'm meeting a lot of different kinds of people that maybe aren't as comfortable with the term climate change, but they are noticing that conditions are changing in farming and that we're probably going to have to take some new strategies um, to get the yields, the crop yields that we've been dependent upon and will continue to be even more so going forward. So there's different frames and different ways to talk about what we face. I also feel like the alarmism isn't helping. Um, I don't know exactly how to tone that down because, again, it's it's almost like a virtue signal. Uh, I don't know if that's the right term. I'm not sure if that's what I mean. But it's so aligned to certain political uh, ideologies that it's become more difficult to tease out the science and the evidence-based policy solutions that we could move toward from aligning with a particular stance on who should be in office. And that's that's really a missed opportunity because it doesn't matter what party you're part of, climate change will impact you. Um, so I'd love to see us move the conversation a little bit away from partisanship if possible. Now, that's been going on since before. I worked in Congress uh, beginning in 2006, and that was a challenge then. It's gotten a lot worse, obviously. So I don't have an easy solution and definitely not something I could pull out and discuss for another 15 minutes and we'd be, we'd be done. Uh, but I think that, that we can move and in many ways are moving, maybe not so visibly, uh, towards some action that will make a difference. And I would just love to say, that's why I love that you wanted to have this conversation today. Um, I think we can move in that direction and also tell a few more people about what's going on along the way. Well, I totally get that it's almost impossible to disentangle uh, climate change from partisanship at the actual levels of people in power. But is there a way that we can try to work on that in our ordinary lives? Because you're absolutely right that whatever the term is, virtue signaling or something else, um, if it's associated with one party, anybody who identifies as the other party is going to take an opposite stance. And, And how do you open a conversation on climate change or, you know, on potential solutions without framing it as a like, this is what we should do because we're liberals or conservatives? <laughs> it's another great question. People are a lot more willing to take someone seriously if there's already trust embedded into the relationship. And the person with that message is willing to not just talk, but also spend a lot of time listening. Um, for, in my own life, I have a lot of friends who are conservative and liberal And uh, among the conservatives, they might not immediately be ready to talk about climate change. But uh, one friend, for example, recently took a cruise to Alaska before the pandemic and came back and said, you know, I'm really troubled. I didn't see what I thought I was going to see. The icebergs don't look like they used to look. And it started a conversation between us. And now he comes to me when he has questions about climate change. So I think starting from a place with people in your own community who you already have a relationship with, it might not seem like the biggest platform because it's not a national audience, but all of us have these networks with different kinds of folks that we so infrequently listen to. And it becomes uh, an echo chamber of people who, who think like us and talk like us that are in our circle. I think bringing more people into those conversations that we know, maybe in our family, maybe in our neighborhood, uh, is really probably the most important piece that we're missing right now. What do you say to um, the cynicism, whether it comes from uh, someone who doesn't want to do anything about it because, oh, it's already too late, like kind of the politicians you mentioned earlier, or even just from 
some regular person, and I've had my moments of this, where it's just, it's it's tiring and it's hopeless and, and it is easier to sort of be resigned to the end of the world than to actually think that we can change this. It, it definitely can feel overwhelming. I agree with you there. But I like to tell stories of hope, especially stories about things that I work on that maybe aren't as flashy and getting all the media coverage. Can you tell us a couple? <laughs> of course. Um, I'm really interested in agriculture. Agriculture contributes tremendous amount of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, but the ag sector really matters, and it's not one that gets a lot of news coverage. And that's because it takes so much energy and water and all of our resources um, to plant, to harvest, to clear land, to refrigerate, to store, to transport, to go through all the steps along the way to get to our plate. And again, I already talked about food waste, but we're starting to change the way we eat. Now, I can't speak for Canada. I'm sure Canadians eat a lot of meat too, but in the US, we eat an average of 214 pounds of meat per year per person, which has an enormous footprint. But now there's a lot of people through this um, collaboration through startups and science and entrepreneurship to change the way we eat, make us a bit less dependent on very carbon intensive uh, farming practices like beef. So just the explosion of plant-based meat alternatives, the rise of what will soon be uh, commercially available um, of cell-cultured meat are going to offer new options for communities that maybe aren't vegetarian or weren't looking for uh, those kinds of alternatives specifically because they normally would look for the, the vegan option. But these, these products are being engineered and designed to substitute meat. And that's very scary to meat lobbyists. And I've seen a lot of pushback, but it is starting to take a little bit of the market away from traditional meat, traditional beef in particular. I see that as a huge change that's happened extremely fast. And I find that very encouraging. I find the fact that climate change has become such an important voting issue in the 2020 U.S. election. A huge difference from where we were even 10 years ago when candidates didn't really want to talk about it or say those terms. The marches, we see marches all around the world constantly, especially by young people who are taking this very seriously. Maybe a little more hopeless than I prefer, but but we've woken up to the fact that something's different. And then even the conversations I have with my, my colleagues in the farming community, as I said, they might not be willing to talk about climate change, but they are starting to be deeply concerned when crops fail in a year because we get devastating tornadoes going across the center of the country. Um, and I think the wildfire situation, the hurricane situation, especially in 2020, speaks for itself. So I don't I don't like, I mean, it's it's horrible that these things are happening with increased severity, but I do think there's a collective recognition that something's different and we better do something about it. So the title of your piece um, in Scientific American was No Climate Change Will Not End the World in 12 Years, like all the uh, all the doomsday porn that we do see. Um, so I guess my last question for you is, if climate change is not going to end the world in 12 years, what will the world look like with climate change in 12 years? What do you see instead of those pictures of a skeleton in a desert? Well, I'll preface this answer by saying I do not choose the headline, as you probably know. So I wasn't super thrilled with that headline. <laughs> why not? Can you tell me why not first? It, it speaks to the purpose of the piece, 
But there's a lot of people who see headlines and don't read the articles themselves. Yes. So there were a number of people that assumed I was a climate denier and, you know, were sending me these horrible emails, uh, not having read anything further down than that headline. So I think, but I understood why that, I mean, that headline was probably part of the exact same thing that we've been talking about. Um, It's flashy. It, It sounds like something that you should click over to. Uh, the headline was fine. Um, in terms of what will our world look like in 12, 13, 15 years, I truly believe that that will be up to us and it's still up to us. So we can choose to promote the kinds of research and in turn the kinds of technologies that are going to give us a more food secure future while making the distribution of food more just and equitable. I mean, we're in this situation where some of us have too much to eat And we have a lot of health problems because of that. And a heck of a lot of people aren't getting enough food, uh, which is absurd. But the issue right now isn't that we don't have enough food globally. It's that we don't distribute it well. Um, That will change as more people are here. But we can find ways to be more equitable and to, to create a better outcome. We have to be smart with water. Water is our most critical resource in light of climate change. And there are a lot of folks looking into where we can where we can use water resources um, in in a more efficient way. Efficiency is a huge part of this solution. Um, We're seeing the emergence. There's there's an energy transition that's happening right now. And I think a lot of people aren't even aware of that because we're not focused on it. But the way we use energy is changing very quickly. Now in the U.S., again, I know I keep being U.S.-centric, but that's where I am, so I I know our data. Um, We're pretty closely tied to you, so no worries. That's that's my understanding. And we're very dependent upon each other in many ways as well. We are not investing in resource and development, which is a lot of the science stuff, um, to the extent that other countries are. So does that mean that other countries like China become leaders in this space, that we have the ability to really... Um, meet our, meet our challenges. And, uh, I mean, I mean, solar is one example. China's really invested in solar and the U S kind of stepped back for a lot of reasons that are too detailed to go into right now, but we can choose to be a leader. We can choose to innovate. We can choose uh, to meet this challenge in a way that is more humane, that considers, uh, the biodiversity of life on planet earth, not just humans, because I think a lot of us forget that humans are one part of a much more complex system that's becoming uh, increasingly fragile as species are going extinct. There's there's so many pieces to this, but we're seeing more interest in attention to where our food comes. I know I keep going back to food, but that's what I work in. More interest in where our food comes from. Uh, more interest in, in how we can make our way on this planet while considering the biodiversity of life that's both just and equitable uh, to humans and other species. And I see that as a real reason for optimism in addressing our climate challenges. Cheryl, thank you for this dose of optimism. I think uh, on this topic especially, we needed it. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on, and I, I hope to talk to you again sometime. Cheryl Kirschenbaum of Science Debate and of Serving Up Science, which you can get wherever you get podcasts. Just like you can get the big story wherever you get your podcasts and also at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And of course, find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Email us, but not with climate denial, at thebigstorypodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. <laughs>